My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Blood, manufactured by no factory or pharmaceutical company, is one of modern healthcare's most essential medications. It is worth taking a moment to think about the primitiveness of this treatment. In contrast to the intricately designed new cancer drugs that target a specific gene in a specific cancer cell, giving a patient blood is the rough equivalent of filling up a car that is low on oil. Once the level of blood in a patient drops below a certain threshold, we doctors unthinkingly refill it with a few units of donated red blood cells. We do this for patients who are losing blood in their stool, those with excess menstrual bleeding, those in car accidents, and after surgery. Except for the occasional patient who had allergies, in the United States, I never had to think where the blood came from. And yet, in Haiti, it is something that we always have to keep in mind. It was my last day in clinic in Haiti before I was to go to the United States for a week and a half fundraising trip. I was seeing mostly adult patients mixed in with a few children. Over time, I've come to enjoy seeing both. My third patient of the day was a young woman, 25 years old. As she walked into the exam room, it was clear that she was ill. For physicians, this general assessment is more valuable than any sophisticated exam. You might see 30 patients in a day, but you need to know which patient needs your undivided attention. And this lady was one of them. She was with her sister, who helped her walk into the room. She was sweating slightly and quickly sunk into the chair in front of me. I asked her to tell her story. She said that she had been having horrible abdominal pain since Saturday, three days before. She also noted that she felt feverish and remarkably weak. She could barely walk without getting fatigued. I could tell she was breathing fast. In a young female, gynecologic problems must be at the top of your list. I asked if she was pregnant. She assured me that she was not. She told me that she had started her period on Sunday. Not convinced, I asked her the last time she had seen her period, and she responded April 1st, exactly one month prior. So I moved on. She had no diarrhea or vomiting. Her pain seemed to be located throughout her abdomen. She had no symptoms of a UTI. I had her sit on the exam table, and I got out my handheld ultrasound. I looked at her heart. It was beating rapidly, but the strength appeared fine. I looked at her gallbladder. Again, no issues. I looked at her lungs. No pneumonia that I could detect. Next, I pulled down the skin under her eye to check her blood level. Now, this is something I had never done in the United States. I had worked in the hospital, and I knew patients' blood levels to the exact number before I saw them. But here, when labs are difficult or you're in the mountains, this may be all you have to go on. For her, the underside of her eyelid was as white as a sheet. As I looked at her tongue and her palms, the whiteness stood out against the rest of her skin. I knew her blood level was probably around 4 to 5. Normal is 13. We usually need to give a blood transfusion if it drops below 7. So this was likely pretty severe. This explained why her heart was beating so fast. It was trying to keep up, like an engine making the most of a tiny amount of oil. I sent her to our lab for an urgent exam for confirmation. Now, labs are cheap at our clinic. Basic tests are generally around a dollar. But even so, I cannot test everything as I would in the U.S. I decided I would just get a blood level and a pregnancy test. 30 minutes later, the results came back. Her hemoglobin was 4.8. And the next surprise was her pregnancy test. She was indeed pregnant. Perhaps, instead of a period the month prior, she had just had some light spotting that can happen in early pregnancy, and she had thought it was a period. I took her back to the exam room and got out the ultrasound again. This time, I only looked at her uterus. It was easy to visualize, but there was no fetus inside. 
but all around the uterus and lower abdomen, there was a massive amount of fluid. I am an internal medicine doctor, not a gynecologist, but this could only mean one thing. She had something called a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is when the fetus starts to grow in a location outside the uterus. This can happen in the fallopian tubes, for example. At first, there might be no indication of a problem, but soon the tubes are not large enough and they rupture, hemorrhaging blood into the abdomen and killing the fetus. This is undoubtedly what happened in this case. If the bleeding continued, the patient could die. We have a constant shortage of cars, and all the clinic cars were out on errands or in the mountains. We did not have much choice at this point. A hemoglobin this low is an emergency. I called my driver, and we loaded her and her sister into my car, and we drove off. We headed to Petit et Sir, which is a large hospital that takes care of high-risk obstetric cases. While Smyrn drove, we talked with the patient and her sister about the need to start finding blood. This was now the most pressing issue. In Haiti, as in many developing nations, people don't just go to their local blood bank and donate blood. First, nearly half of all women and more than a quarter of men are chronically anemic, meaning that their blood levels are too low to donate. Second, in Port-au-Prince, there is only one central location that I'm aware of where you can give blood. Traveling across Port-au-Prince takes hours at best and is dangerous at worst. And lastly, when most of the population has difficulty making ends meet, from food to school, giving up some of your body's fluids to a stranger is low on the list of needs. The way it works in Haiti is when a family member needs blood, they call all their relatives and friends to make the trek up the mountain in Port-au-Prince to the Red Cross. They will each donate a unit. Then in exchange for this donation, let's say all these people give four units total, then the Red Cross will release four units for use for the patient. This system is ubiquitous across the developing world. I find that in Haiti, family members are essential for survival in every facet of life. Average people cannot get by without a network of brothers, sisters, and aunts to help them, and vice versa. The situation with blood is just another example of that. En route, the patient and her sister frantically called family members to go up to Port-au-Prince to donate. Both were scared and crying. I was afraid they wouldn't perform the surgery without blood available. I doubt any American surgeon would have attempted abdominal surgery on a patient with a hemoglobin of 4.8 and no blood available. By the time we reached the hospital, she had been able to get a hold of one relative who said they would try to donate. But she was having difficulty reaching others because cellular service can be very spotty. It's difficult to imagine the panic of trying to get life-saving treatment for yourself, but being prevented by a poor network signal. Embarrassingly, I find myself annoyed when cellular service prevents me from chatting with a friend. At the hospital, we brought the patient in. She was taken to the back. After this, we didn't see her again. We talked with the sister and instructed her to continue to try to reach family members. I was not optimistic, given that the Red Cross was hours away from the family's home, and I doubted they were open at night. I genuinely did not know what would happen. After milling around for some time, Smyrna and I left. I had to pack for the United States the next morning, and it was getting late. She was in the hands of the gynecologist now. The next morning, on our way to the airport, we called the patient to check in. Most significantly, it was the patient herself that answered the phone. This meant that we had passed the first and most essential hurdle. She was alive. I had thought there was a good chance she might die during the night. She told me that they were never able to get the blood, but the surgeons went ahead anyway. I silently thanked the surgeons who were brave enough to attempt the operation. The surgery had gone well, and there had not been significant blood loss. The patient was still trying to coordinate getting her family to the Red Cross, but the urgency was lessened by the fact that she was no longer bleeding. She would survive. 
Being either a doctor or a patient in Haiti takes a lot of work. As a doctor in the U.S., a transfer to the hospital is relatively straightforward. I just call 911 and then the local hospital and off the patient goes. In Haiti, though, an ambulance is often out of the price range and time is of the essence. For patients, they are responsible for bringing their own food to the hospital. When they're admitted, they must walk to the pharmacy to get their own medications. And like my patient, they often must spend the ride to the hospital while they are near death, calling family members to arrange blood. It is just not easy. And because it's not easy, many, many patients die. But fortunately, our patient was not one of them. She will likely be able to make a full recovery and hopefully will have a long life ahead of her. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We would like you to know that we are simply telling stories as we have seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a fascinating history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you and God bless.